so I just wanted to share a little bit about Larissa and I. We have been um, uh, doing mission work among Muslims for years. And one story I'll share with you, and for those listening in the, on the podcast, is uh, we love to share the gospel in Arabic with Muslims. And one particular day, I was in Bethlehem in the Holy Land, and I was going up into the old city where they sell fruits and vegetables. And I was going up the stone steps, <clears throat> and I just prayed a simple prayer, Lord, would you move me to meet the people you want me to meet today? And stronger than I've ever felt, I felt like God was pulling me up the stairs. I said, okay, let's go. And I felt him take me forward and turn me to the right. And I walked right into this Muslim mini market where there are two Muslim brothers working. And I brought something up to the front. And the man behind the cash register was, I later learned, um, a very high up member of Hamas, this terrorist group. But he had seen a vision of Jesus four years before. And so I'll finish that story later for those in the listening audience too. Um, but yeah, we, we love to share the gospel with Muslims and we love to be here at Mount Hermon. Uh, just, it's just the most beautiful place on earth, I think. Um, okay, so as you know, in ministry, um, yeah, yeah, in ministry, uh, you get to see spiritual warfare. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about spiritual warfare and also, um, you know, the, I think the, the, I already, Larissa, I already did the introduction, uh, that I think the center of our war is, you know, we were born into this war as believers, and the war isn't just against the demonic, though that's true, or against the, um, the flesh, though that's also true, but it is for something. It is for abiding in Christ, like we did this morning at the worship service, this meeting with God, you know. And my favorite Hebrew word in, uh, for prayer, because there are a number of them, is paga, which means a meeting with an outcome. So that is our war, because Jesus promised, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, and I remain in you, you will what? You will bear much fruit. And so the enemy knows that, and he hates to lose his property. And so he fights against our prayer life, this time that we abide with Christ. And then the Lord goes on to say, uh, apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. So uh, that, you know, if you want a bunch of nothing, neglect your prayer life, and you'll have a bunch of nothing. But as you abide in him, there's a promise you will bear fruit, you will see people come to faith, and that is the center of the war. And we've seen this war as we've served in North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe among Muslims. Uh, as uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we went to the country of Tunisia. If you're in Italy, you head straight south and you get to Tunisia. And we took a seven-hour train ride from north to south. Uh, we were told there are very few missionaries, very few workers in the south. We saw a village on left and right, left and right, where the gospel's not been proclaimed for a thousand years and then the Lord placed us in this apartment down in the south of Tunisia, across the street from two sisters who had received the Bible two years before. They told us, we've been reading this book for two years. We haven't understood it for t uh, two years. And we've been praying for two years for someone to come and teach us. And so we got to teach them and disciple them. And the oldest sister came to Christ and was baptized. 
And why is that? Because we're so good? No, it's because Jesus' promises always come true. That as we pray, and even as those who are seeking the Lord are praying, he is going to take our big you know, family from across the world to come down to their neighborhood across the street from them to share the gospel. So our prayer life is the most important thing that we have. And the devil wants us to think it's not, but it is. Uh, he wants us to have a weak prayer life because he knows the promises of God always come true. As when we moved to Jordan uh, about nine years ago, and we had been living there uh, in the 90s, and uh, we went back there. And uh, a man that I had known 13 years before came back into our lives, and we lost track of him for 13 years as we left Jordan, uh, but then we came back, and we came back into our lives, and we, we studied the Bible with him. He loved it. One day, uh, he came to our house. I gave him the Jesus film. We didn't know if he'd watch it or not, and he goes home, and uh, the next week brings us back the Jesus film. He says, my wife and I watched this. This is correct. And it was the very next week he came, you know, smoking a cigarette as he walked up the stairs into our house. And uh, he looked terrible. His face looked terrible. His hair looked terrible. Everything looked terrible. Uh, and we whisk him out to the front porch and say, hey, what's going on? He says, starts telling us all his problems, this problem, that problem. And uh, then, you know, he says, you have a purpose, right? We said, yes, we love to serve the Lord. He said, I have no purpose and I don't even want to live. And so I went and grabbed the Bible. We brought it to him and we said, you know, you... Uh, read about Jesus. He's the good shepherd. You were never meant to love, live without the good shepherd, and he's going to speak to you right now. And so he read, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He looked at us and said, could I really have this rest? We said, absolutely. And so he prayed and received the Lord that night and received that rest. And why is that? Because we're so good? No. It's because God answers our prayers, and he is going to let us bear fruit as we abide in him. So that is the war that I want to encourage you in. And some of you are in it. You're in it deep. And I want to encourage you to just stay strong in the war. Now, every war uh, has an objective. Uh, that is, in fact, the first principle of warfare in the American military that we have. And uh, so, for example, some years ago, and there was this conflict in South Asia. And the clearly defined objective, right, the first principle of war, was to not let communism pass this point or pass this uh, longitude, this latitude. And so uh, that was the clearly defined objective. Uh, now, for Christianity, what is the clearly defined objective for the church? What is our objective? Now that I have a humongous audience to choose from, what do you think? What is our objective as the church? Win people to the Lord, exactly. And, and Jesus says it many ways. He says, go therefore into all the world, right? All the world, baptizing, teaching. He says it in another way. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends, right? The ends of the earth. He says it in another way. This gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to all nations as a testimony to all ethne, all ethnic groups. And then the end will come. 
And so that is our objective, to bring the gospel to all peoples, that his blood was shed not just for you and me, but for the ends of the earth, to every coastline, to every mountaintop where there are people. He died for them. And that is our clearly defined objective. However, Satan, as in warfare, always wants to confuse the situation, right? And instead of let's focus on people who need to hear the gospel, no, it's let's focus on the color of the carpet in a service that we go to one hour a week, right? <laughs> There's no need to focus on that. It's really not about that. Did you know that um, uh, they have researched, uh, mission agencies have researched that they are the last of the last reached people groups, groups to be reached? And they're called the level zero groups. They have zero people going to them and zero scriptures in their language. And we know that across this globe and the jungles of Brazil and in hard places in the middle of Africa, there are 457 of the last reached people groups. 457. And they're hard to get to. Uh, when you look at Sudan and South Sudan, there are 50 level zero groups. And so when you see things like political conflict, like the genocide some years back, the recent civil war in Sudan, South Sudan, and other conflicts there, it is not just political. It is spiritual warfare to stop you and to stop me from going to the last reach people groups because what's going to happen when they've all heard? Then the end will come. And so if I were the enemy, I would want to stop any mission work to South Sudan and South Sudan. And that's what he's doing. In fact, there's a word, uh, there's a verse in the scripture, Satan hindered the way. The word hindered there, it, it's very telling. It was a term used of, in the ancient world of when an army is in retreat, they break up or they hinder the road. They break up the road so that the pursuing army doesn't get them. And so uh, that is what Satan is trying to do. And yet we will go to the ends of the earth. We know that all will be reached. Every nation, every people, every language, every tribe will be reached. But there will be sacrifice as we go. That is our clearly defined objective. Can I tell you a true story? We work, with, uh, we work in the Holy Land with one of the last reached people groups on earth. They are the deaf Palestinians, over 22,000, and they have nothing in their language uh, that reaches them with the gospel, sign language or just lip reading. And so we uh, go there and we, we go to there uh, about three to four months a year. We love to learn, uh, serve the Lord among the Arabic speakers there in the Holy Land. And uh, we started some years ago reaching out to the deaf in Bethlehem. But then I said, man, let's try to reach out to those in the north. There's 22,000, they're hard to reach, hard to find. So we went to the city of Ramallah and I was looking for a deaf center. I couldn't find one. I tried this one location, and they weren't interested in a sewing project we do with the deaf. I went to another location they told us about. They weren't interested. And then I went to the middle of the city of Ramallah, this, this sort of biggest city in the Palestinian territories. And uh, there's like three, four-story buildings all around on all the blocks. And I saw this cafe up on the second floor. I said, I'm going to go speak to someone about the gospel up there. So I walk upstairs, grab a seven up, and I see a group to the right and a group to the left, and I pray, Lord, would you please show me which group do you want me to speak to? 
And so he indicated, indicated the group to the left. So I go over, it's a mother and daughter, the daughter's in her 20s. And I sit down and I said, excuse me, do you know where there's a deaf center here in Ramallah? And right at that moment, something happened. I saw when I came up the stairs that they were installing a window on the third or fourth floor. Well, it came crashing down right at that moment onto part of the cafe and out into the street. And I thought, well, that's just the enemy. So I asked again, do you know where there's a deaf center here in Ramallah? And the young lady said to me, do you know where the Red Crescent is? I said, yeah, it's like the Red Cross big building. I said, I know where that is. She said, go to the fourth floor and speak to so-and-so. And I said, what? She says, I used to work there. They have a death center on the fourth floor. I said, my goodness. And so I was so excited. The Lord brought me there. I got to share the gospel with these two ladies in a certain way that I share in Arabic. And at the end, they said, well, that's really good, but don't you share any of that religious stuff with uh, the uh, Hillel al-Ahmar, the uh, Red Crescent, because they are a secular organization. They want to hear it. I said, well, I'll probably share anyway. And so I left. And I went to the fourth floor, and I met the lady she told me to meet. And uh, they said, she said, listen, the director's not here, but come next week. She'll be very interested in your project. And so I came the next week, and there was the director at her desk, and there were about six deaf ladies here uh, sitting, and a translator from Arabic to Arabic sign language. And I brought this, uh, I'll see if I can grab one over here. It is a uh, little wallet that our ladies make in Bethlehem, our deaf ladies. And I, I said, this is something that we could do here at the Red Crescent with your deaf ladies. And uh, she says, okay, well, what does it mean? And, and here it's a word in Arabic. It says kutubah, and it means it was written. But what was written? What does it mean? I said, well, uh, I wasn't sure if I should share right away because I'm going to get kicked out, right, if I do. I said, well, the color gold means that God values all of us, all of us, deaf, hearing, and so on. She says, yeah, but what does it mean? So after the fourth time she asked, what does it mean? I said, well, let me tell you. So I said, the first letter of this word stands for, it's an acrostic, for the gospel, it stands for that Jesus was the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the eternal word of God. And the second letter means that he died. He died for our sins. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He died for our sins, the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins and bring us forgiveness. And the last letter in this acrostic means that Jesus rose from the grave to give us eternal life. He said, I'm the resurrection of the life. Those that believe in me, though they die, yet will they live. And those who live believing in me will never die. I said, so if you believe in Jesus, that he is the eternal word of God that died to cover your sins, that he rose to give you eternal life, you can have eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. The, and I was ready to be kicked out. The director leans forward and says, that is beautiful. Can we do the project? And I said, absolutely. So the next week we show up, there are 16 deaf women. We get to share the gospel again. And then it's also our way to care for the poor, that they make these and then we buy them from them. It's our way to show them. Because usually they're the bottom of the totem pole, that no one is going to employ them usually. And even they probably won't get married. So we want to care for the poorest of the poor in that sense. So that is our objective to find the last reached, and to go to them, right? I told you uh, that I went to Tunisia, a country of 11 and a half million people, only 100 to 200 known believers in the whole country. That's, that's lost. That is dark. These people are our objective. So another principle of warfare, or the second one I'll speak about, is maneuver, or to have flexibility, 
So in our military and other militaries around the, the world, maneuver is very important. So remember World War II, uh, Germany had these panzer units of tanks. They were outmaneuvering everybody. They were decimating everybody they came into contact with. Uh, you know about that story. Well, towards the end of the war, uh, as you know, the, the problem they were having is they were running out of fuel. So there you have these great tanks, great ability, and no fuel, and then they were decimated themselves because they couldn't maneuver. So that's an important principle of warfare. So my question to you is, uh, in our spiritual war, are you flexible? Right? Are you flexible to cross the street when God moves you to speak to that person you should? Or is your life more, I've got so much to do, I have no time for that person or that person or that person, right? I know a friend of mine who, he works in an office, and I asked him about this. I said, tell me, how do you apply this in your life? He says, well, listen, uh, my desk is right here, and the water is over here. So when I take a water break, I go a different route every day to speak to someone new or to see someone that I haven't seen in a while. And then the Lord begins to bring conversations up as time goes by. It's his way to maneuver. Can I share another true story with you? We were, uh, as you know, I, I mentioned that we've been ministering to Muslims, my wife, for over 30 years, for me, over 20 years. And we love to share the gospel in Arabic with them. Uh, we were in Greece. And as you know, all these refugees are flooding from Syria and Iraq into, into Greece and then onwards into Europe and Germany and so on. But we really wanted an opportunity to minister in Greece, so we showed up in Athens, and we knew a ministry that reaches out, but no one on staff at that ministry speaks Arabic. So we were excited, we got there, and then one day in the ministry van, we got in, and we went down to the refugee camp, camp just south of Athens. Excuse me. And uh, we arrived there, and it's like cabins in the wood. Beautiful place. Probably the nicest refugee camp in all of Europe. It used to be owned by the government, and then they handed it over to the refugees. Probably 200 families are in the woods there in these cabins. And as we show up, uh, about six people, seven people gather around the van to get in because they want to go into town because it's kind of boring out in the woods. Well, one of the guys that jumps in, Larissa sees he's clearly Arab, and so she says in Arabic to him, hi, my name is Larissa, it's good to meet you. Just a simple greeting. He turns to her and says, I've been waiting 10 months for someone to tell me about Jesus. And, you know, we didn't even mention we were Christians, but he knew somehow the, there was just something he saw. Well, we learned more about this guy. He uh, was not Muslim. He was Yazidi, which is a, sort of a Satan-worshipping group there in Syria and Iraq. And uh, ISIS, when they came in, they slaughtered them. You may have heard some of the stories. His community was really hurt. In fact, he said, my mom and my two-year-old brother were beheaded by ISIS. So he was fleeing for his life. It's really tragic, so many tragedies. And then he told us another thing. He said he's got these four abscessed teeth. We saw them. He says all they're doing is handing him pain pills at the camp. We said, oh, no. So we went straight to the clinic. She translated immediately for the dentist, and they were able to take him within a week and get his teeth taken care of, praise the Lord. So that was wonderful. And uh, so as we then uh, were at the clinic, we left and went to the ministry center called Homespot. Wonderful place if you ever have a chance to go minister near Athens. And uh, we sat down with him and I began to share the gospel. Again, the same simple gospel, acrostic. And I said, Jesus is the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And through him all things came into being. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So I said, then Jesus died for our sins. He's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And I began to explain about the death of Christ. Well, at that time, he said, listen, I've got to get back to the camp. We said, no problem. We'll go with you. So I continued in the van sharing with him. Uh, I said, you know, he is the, the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. He's the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins, to bring us close to God, to bring us forgiveness. And last, after three days, he rose from the grave to give us eternal life. He's the resurrection and the life. I said, so Wahid is the name of this, this young man. I said, if you believe that Jesus is the word of God that became flesh, that he died to cover your sins, and that he rose from the grave to give you eternal life, you have to welcome him. Do you want to welcome Christ into your heart? He said, yes, I do. And so we prayed. He received the Lord. And as I looked over, he was smiling. The whole day he was not smiling. He was in pain. But he received the greatest gift that anyone can receive, a relationship with God. Amen? Maneuver. Are you able to be flexible enough to get to the place where you need to share the gospel with people? So another principle of warfare, and uh, all of these principles, by the way, are from my wife's cousin. He was 26 years in the military, and I asked him every time I see him, hey, tell me something more about warfare, and then let's compare it to spiritual warfare. So we have a great time all the time we get together. Uh, I said, tell me about defense. Tell me about offense. So he said, okay, let's talk about offense. He said, the first thing you do is you set up what? Security. So that was his, that was his, um, uh, the first thing you do, he was saying. So uh, why do you set up security? Because the enemy who is holding captive these people who have never heard the gospel, the enemy w doesn't want you to free them, doesn't want you to share the gospel with them, and so he's going to attack you, right? So the enemy wants to maybe outflank you or maybe even come behind and and so you might even have a rear guard. So the first principle is security. Uh, the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you set up what's called supporting fire. So you have a group here, and they're going to be firing at the target, at the objective. And then finally is the attack. You have a group here, and they're going to be coming through the objective. All right. So in our spiritual warfare then, what is our security right? What is our supporting fire? And then last, what is the attack? So let's start with the security. What is our security? Any ideas? In our spiritual warfare, what is the thing that keeps us secure? Okay, let's talk about faith. Faith in God. Amen? So we could say that God is our, our shield. And there are many verses that speak about that. Our faith in him. Our, our trust in his trustworthiness. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 52, 12. And it speaks about this exact thing. It says there, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. Um, uh, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So God not only is our guard, 
God is our guard, excuse me, but he goes before us as we go to minister to people. He's going before us, preparing the way. But he is our God uh, who guards us. And the enemy knows this, that God is going to guard us, but he wants us to doubt, to not have trust, to not have faith, right? He wants us to doubt that. Uh, and it make it, you know, legalistic. Well, if I didn't do 100%, God can never use me. Uh, I have this, uh, uh, I don't know if I'll mention the name of this person, but a person went to a particular very legalistic Christian camp. It wasn't this one, by the way. There's nowhere near here. Um, and, and they had tents. And the leader said, when you close your tent, use both hands. And if you don't, God sees. And if you're not faithful in the little things, he's never going to use you. <laughs> so that kind of teaching. Uh, God, listen, uh, he's, he's going to guard you even when you mess up. Even when you do the tent with one hand, he will still use you. Uh, my favorite passage that speaks to this truth is in uh, Romans chapter 8. For I am convinced. What, are, what is Paul convinced of? That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is our guard. He is the one who will always be our shield, even when we mess up. So then uh, there's another verse I really like that speaks about being guarded as well. So there's so many verses you could study. And there are many other things I'm sure that guard us, but this is one of them that I like. It says in the fourth chapter of Philippians, verses six and following, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition or prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard. It will guard your heart and mind. So our prayers with thanksgiving guard us. So I can put here that your prayers... and your praise. That's why um, when you're in the car and you have a choice of something to listen to, listen to praise, it's a guard to you. It guards your heart. When you are praying, uh, it is also a guard to you. When you're leaning on the Lord, that is a guard. He is that shield. And so the enemy knows this. He knows that you're guarded when you're praying and you're praising, so he wants to make you think, this is worthless. Uh, why bother praying? God's not listening anyway. He wants you to think, why go to church? Why praise? Why, you know, I could be five more minutes on this app, right? Well, take those five minutes and uh, praise the Lord. He, instead of a thousand and one things you could be thankful for and focusing on those, he'll want you to think and focus on the thousand and one things that are hard and, oh, complain and fill you with complaints because he knows if you're, if you're uh, open to that, he's going to be able to, to get you. He'll be able to get into your life in a certain way and uh, come against you in spiritual warfare. So those are your guards, your prayer and your praise. How is your praise life? How is your prayer life? Keep it strong. So 
the next question is, what is the supporting fire in our spiritual war and what is the attack? So any ideas? What is this, the supporting fire? What is the attack? The word of God. That is the sword of the spirit. That is our attack. And so the way I like to think of it is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. That love is actually the supporting fire and speaking the truth is the attack. So let's think of it this way. Suppose you had someone who was up on the proverbial soapbox and they are preaching truth, but they don't love anybody. They just, you know, hold the sign up, God hates. And they know this list goes there, right? I believe there are people like that. Um, uh, so, sure, that's true. God does hate this sin and that sin. He hates all sin, but uh, there's no love connected to it. How, how effective is that person? Is that, they're really effective? Okay. No, because they don't have any love. But suppose then on the other hand, you have someone very loving, very kind, and that also comes from the Spirit of God. But they never open their mouth to say, Jesus is Savior, right? That's not, it's a very weak attack. There's no truth there. So it's speaking the truth in love. And I want to focus on that love aspect for a moment when you look at the news, and again, this is about the seminar called Militant Islam, Refugees, and Terror at Home. When you think about refugees in the news and all the bad news that goes with a certain percentage of that, small percentage of those refugees, when you see a refugee, what comes to mind? When you, when you watch the CNN or whatever it is, right? What is the emotion you feel? Maybe fear, right? Instead of walking across to them and saying, hi, what's your name? It's, let me get out of here, right? That's the exact opposite of what God is saying to us about speaking the truth in love. I began by sharing a story about a man in Bethlehem that I met some years ago. And I was in the old city of Bethlehem. And I was walking up the stone stairs into the marketplace where they sell fruits and vegetables. And I said, Lord, would you move me to meet the person you want me to meet today? And I just read in uh, one of Peter's epistles, he said that the Holy Spirit moved these prophets to give us the prophecies. I said, Lord, would you move me? And stronger than I've ever felt, I felt God pulling me up the stairs. I said, okay, let's go. He took me right, took me to this Muslim mini market. I grabbed something, come to the counter. And there's a man sitting behind the counter, Muslim guy. He says, hey, are you, he saw my beard, are you uh, Muslim? I said, no, I follow Jesus. But you know, Jesus' beard is longer than this. And he laughed. And the next words out of his mouth were, I love Jesus. And I thought, okay, that's not normal. Most Muslims do not say that. Uh, I've never heard, not heard that. But I said, man, I love him too. Let's talk about him sometime. So we exchange numbers and I walk out and I feel this is the guy I was supposed to meet. So very soon after that, we go to this man's house, meet his wife, meet his kids. And after two hours, the wife's been bringing in Coca-Cola, bringing in chocolate. I pull out the Arabic New Testament. I say, there's a very important question. What does it mean that Jesus is the son, that he's the son of God? And 19 times in the Quran, it says God does not have a son. And they accuse you Christians, they accuse us Christians of believing that God is like a Greek mythology God who takes a human wife and has babies. I said, that's not what we believe at all. So I took him to three verses that show what the term son means. The first was that when Jesus was baptized, the spirit descends as a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my 
beloved son. I said the father loves Jesus like a son. That's what Paul could say of Timothy in the Bible. He's my son. Well, he's not really his son uh, physically, but he loves him like a son. So it's not that the father had a wife and a baby. No, it's he loves Jesus. He has uh, this relationship of love. And why? Because Jesus, it says later, uh, the father loves him because he serves the father's will. In the Middle East, uh, it's very well understood that the oldest son of the family serves the father's will in that family. And we said, uh, and there's even a special name for that son, the oldest son. But we said Jesus did not serve 99%, but 100% and gave his life as a ransom for many. So he's the beloved, he's the servant, and finally he's the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Through him all things came into being, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as this unique son, full of grace and truth. I said, never in history has the eternal word of God taken on flesh except here in Jesus. He's the unique son. So the beloved, the servant, the word, that's what it means, not that God took a wife. So Cal, this Muslim guy, turns to his wife and um, says, wife, this is what it means that Jesus is the son of God. It starts preaching the three points. So we were amazed, but his wife was shocked because you do not say that God is a son unless you want to die, Okay. This is part of Islam. That's, that's blasphemy. He said, no, that's what it means. Then we handed him that Bible and the Jesus film. I said, this is a gift. He said, this is the best gift you could have ever given me. He told us that night that he was with Hamas and he was captured. He was put in Israeli prison for four and a half years. But one of his friends in Israeli prison, also a Hamas guy, got out and became a Christian. He said, I've heard everything my friend says about Jesus. I love everything he says. It's my time to learn. We said, wonderful. Uh, and by the way, his friend, Musab, who became a Christian, wrote a book called Son of Hamas. Great book to read, and it shares a lot of insights about uh, all kinds of things about the Middle East. But that was his friend. He knew him from prison. So we said, come over anytime. You're welcome. So our friend Cal would come to our house sometimes three nights a week, come around nine or ten at night, stay till about one or two in the morning. And uh, he would uh, study the Bible with us. We'd bring out the coffee and the Word of God, and we'd just study for hours and hours. And that was wonderful. The first meeting, he said, guys, this is a closed meeting. Do not share with anyone that I'm studying the Bible with you because I'm very well known in this area. But while you're here, I will watch your back and have many people behind me, but do this one thing, teach me about Jesus. We said, absolutely, what do you want to know? So he had a question. We turned to the scriptures. The scriptures answered his question. Uh, the spirit was moving. We said, great, it's a closed meeting. We'll see you next time. So the next time he comes, he says, guys, I've got some news for you. We said, great, what's your news? He said, well, I was at the leadership meeting for Hamas this week. I'm part of the leadership in Bethlehem, and I told them about you and about how Jesus is the son of God. We said, what did you do? Don't share that we're here with the terrorists, please. He said, yeah, some were really disgusted and left. Others were interested. He said, but the spiritual leader for Hamas was there and opposed him. He said, what are you doing speaking about Jesus here? What are you doing? And uh, our friend Cal said, Jesus is so distinguished. And the spiritual leader said, no, he's not. Adam is better than Jesus. And this offended our friend. He says, what do you mean Adam's better? And the spiritual leader said, well, God formed Adam with his two hands, but Jesus, he's just, just a breath of air. Totally offensive. Our friend Cal said, if this is how Islam disrespects Jesus, count me as a follower of Jesus. He said, by the way, I have a film about Jesus. If any of you wants to see it, it's great. And then he walks out of the room and says, what did I just, just do? And I told him, I said, never be ashamed that you were bold because the Spirit of God moves in boldness. So he would come to our house and learn and literally talk about Jesus at work, 
at his gym, on Facebook. It was so exciting. Then one day, Cal shows up. He says, guys, I'm so discouraged. He said, I'm so new at this. I don't know how to respond when Muslims say things against Christianity. He said, in fact, the spiritual leader also said Jesus did not die. So how do we respond to this? Well, I had just finished my doctorate in religious studies, collected the 44 main arguments against Christianity from Muslims, and how do you respond in 44 ways? I've got 10 whole points when they say he didn't die. I'm ready to teach. So I sit forward, ready to teach. And the Spirit of God says, quiet, be quiet. I sit back, absolutely shocked. I think, hey, I did all the studies, right? Then Larissa sits forward and says something she's never said before. She says, Cal, we know it was Jesus who was on the cross because Mary, the mother of Jesus, could have seen his feet. Larissa said, I know the toes on every foot of every child of mine. Of course Mary saw his feet, couldn't have known it was him. Of course we knew it was him. Our friend Cal got very serious. He said, where is that written? So we turn to the Gospel of John. There's Mary, one of the disciples, Jesus on the cross. There's a conversation going on. She's close enough to see his feet, very clearly. So uh, he writes down the page number. And says, guys, here in Palestine, when a Palestinian has been martyred, they've been shot by an Israeli. They wrap the body in a white sheet. And then they bring the mother to identify the body. And they pull back the sheet over the feet. The mother identifies the body by the feet. We had no clue. We had no idea. He said, I wish you would have told me that. I would have said it in the meeting. And this little verse that we, of course, know and we, we love, uh, it means something so much deeper in his culture. And that's what the Spirit of God wanted to teach him that day. He became a believer. And the next week he said, I've left the leadership of Hamas because I don't want to plan destruction for anyone because I'm a follower of Jesus. And uh, the last night we're with him, we always get a tourist visa when we go. And we can be there up to six months a year. We're usually there three to four months a year. Uh, the last night we were with, with him, he, he prayed a simple prayer. Lord, help me to follow Jesus even if it costs me my life. So he told us many things after coming to faith. One of them was that he had no peace in his life. He had such anxiety. He was wooed into this terrorist group and you can't fully get, ever get out. And uh, he said when he came to our house, he had such anxiety. But when we brought out the coffee and the word of God, he, th he said he felt such peace, which is just the Holy Spirit. He said, I felt there was a chair in your heart I could come and sit. And we praised the Lord. He knew we loved him. Right? He knew we loved him. And that is a part of what brought him to faith. Listen, they don't have this kind of love in Islam. They don't have the spirit of God residing in them. They don't have the forgiveness of their soul in them. And they certainly, because of that, don't have the love of God in them. But he saw it. Uh, he told us something else. Uh, and, and before I leave this thought about love, what is love? It is making room in your heart for someone else's story, right? Um, how are you doing with that? Do you have room for those people, for your kids? Uh, is there lots of room for them to take your time up and to hear them? Or people in your life? Uh, how are you doing with that? Well, one of the things he told us is that when he was uh, captured, he was very high up in Hamas. Uh, he was captured around the year 2000. And he was put in Israeli prison, like I mentioned, four and a half years. When he got out, he was in his living room one morning, about four in the morning, and he looked up, he was just laying on his couch, he looked up and he saw someone in brilliant white light. And there was a fence in front of this person, and then the vision was gone. 
He said he knew it was Jesus. From that moment, he was looking for someone to teach him about Jesus. He would sit in his shop and look out and occasionally see foreigners going by. He saw something sweet inside of them. He knew they were Christians. Uh, but he didn't speak any English. And they didn't speak any Arabic. And so he waited and waited and waited. And four years later, I walked into his shop. And when he tells his testimony, and uh, he says, when he asked me if I was Muslim, he'd heard I was Christian. He says, then I grabbed William. Like, I've never met someone so hungry to know about the Lord Jesus. And love is a part of this. It's a part of the attack. It's a part of letting people get freed from the darkness they're sitting in. And one other thing he told us as well, he said his whole life, he felt he was in a dark room. He says, what do you do when you're in a dark room? He says, you look for the light switch. He says, I finally found it, and it's Jesus. There, that's our objective as people. Not the color of carpets or the music. It's people who are trapped in this life. Um, can I share another story of love with you? Yes. Oh, yeah. And if you want to get infrequent prayer updates, infrequent, I said, uh, we send those out. You're free to uh, sign up for that. So, um, wow. Yes, thank you, Larissa. Uh, and um, so uh, another story. You know, in the Middle East and in North Africa, there's a very uh, big problem, which is disunity between Christian workers. And it's sad, but there's a conflict and there's slander and there's backbiting. And we hate that, but it's, it's just there. And it's because uh, the devil knows how to work and, and divide people. In fact, the name diabolos in, in Greek, uh, it means a ball that goes through something to divide. So that's the devil's name. He is the divider. Well, this year we unfortunately uh, uh, experienced that. And uh, there's this wonderful ministry in the Bethlehem area. And uh, they reach out to all kinds of people, people who need wheelchairs. They have uh, a thing that they reach out to kids who have autism, um, people with disabilities. They employ so many people that have disabilities. It's one of the best ministries, this big ministry building, um, in all of the West Bank. And we love them. When we, sit, we have people come uh, from out of town, we say, hey, listen, don't buy your gifts in Bethlehem Market. Go to this ministry center. They employ disabled people, and they make handcrafts and you know, blankets and all kinds of things, uh, Christmas ornaments and so on. So buy it there. And so we're so, so excited about this place. And um, uh, so we go up this one day, and we have some friends that are leaders in a Palestinian village, and they need wheelchairs. We said, meet us at the center, and we'll take you out to lunch, and we'll show you the wheelchair center. So we show up, and we're with the secretary, and we say, listen, is the director here? We have some friends. They want to see it. You know, uh, can you give a tour? Can we give you a tour? And um, the secretary said, go immediately to the director's office. Very stern. We said, what? And our friends saw that, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's awkward. So we go to his office, and he is huffing and puffing, and he says, you are bringing groups here, and you're telling them that this is your ministry, and you're stealing tens of thousands of dollars from us. And we sat back shocked. We said, listen, there's two people that are here today. There are poor Palestinians that need wheelchairs for the village. We said, when we have friends, like three or four friends from out of town, we say, don't buy your things at the market. Buy them here because you guys are doing an awesome and great work and we love you guys. And I was so hurt that he would have thought that. I mean, I go to church with this brother. And, you know, he said, well, I think you understand. 
And uh, of course, we didn't understand. And I knew that the devil was whispering this to him, this lie, and I wasn't going to let it happen. I was not going to let this happen. I was not going to let this divide us. And as I left, I said, you know what? We're still going to bring groups of people, you know, three or four that we have from out of town, to buy from you guys. And I left. And as Larissa and I were on the way home, she said, I never want to come back. And I understand. It's, it's very hurtful. We were very hurt. But five days later, I went back. And I sat down with him and I said, listen, I've got a question. I had a genuine question about reaching out to people with diabetes. How would you do it? This way, that way? The guy's been there 30 years. He's got all this experience. And he said, no, I wouldn't go with the government and try to do it this way. I'd try to do it in small groups and so on and so forth. And I was, I was loving it because it was a genuine question. We're doing this outreach ministry. And at the end of our talk, I just stood up and I said, thank you so much. And he shook my hand and he said, I'm sorry about last week. I said, no problem. And he said, William, do you need a job? I said, no, we're doing our missionary work. We're reaching out and sharing the gospel. We don't need any, anything else. And he said, well, I need someone to do uh, a certain gardening project. Uh, we have funding for three years with disabled boys. So if you know of someone, please let me know. Well, I thought right away of Cal. He, you know, came to Christ some years back. And I called him up. I said, do you know anything about gardening? He says, yeah, I know some things. So he got the job. And uh, one of the best things that happened out of this is that when he showed up, these boys, uh, many with Down syndrome, other with other kind of uh, disabilities, um, uh, these boys were there and they had filthy language. And they were probably cussed at as little kids and they were just repeating the same thing. And he says, we're going to have none of that. And so he, every day for an hour before work, they sit down at a table and he says, okay, you're going to say I love you to your neighbor. We're going to practice saying I love you. So they say they love you, right? They love each other. And then he says, now we're going to practice saying, mama, I love you. Daddy, I love you. And they practice saying godly words. And he prays for them in the name of Jesus. And so not only are they uh, getting an impact from the gospel, but their families are getting to hear as well. Look what God did through love and unity. How is your unity how is your love with one another? It will be fought against, but this is uh, what the Lord has. This speaking the truth in love is our war. Uh, one last story. So we go to Europe usually up to three months a year. Um, we love to minister refugees there in the Brussels area, other parts of Europe. And this last year, we went up to the Netherlands. Larissa has a childhood friend that married a Dutch lady, and they have some kids, and we love to visit them as we can. So uh, they invite us. We went up there. And as I'm throwing the kids uh, down the zip line in the park there, the neighbor from across the bridge, because all these canals, the neighbor from across the bridge comes over, and she's real curious about us. So she says, hey, so uh, who are you? I said, well, I'm from America. She says, okay, what do you do? Uh, very Dutch, very just straightforward, just blunt. I said, well, I'm a pastor and I, you know, I, um, I reach out to people who speak Arabic. Oh yeah, how does that work? And so I shared a little bit. She said, very interesting. So she goes back and she eventually asked us to come to dinner, uh, which is not necessarily the total Dutch culture thing, which is great. So we go across the bridge one night to her house for dinner. And at dinner, she has all these questions about God. Now in her local village, the local pastor is a lady who does not believe that God exists. That's the pastor. So how is she supposed to get her questions answered? Right? She can't. So we, I think, adequately responded very gently to 
to answer the questions. And then she turns to our friends and say, now, how does someone get William and Larissa to stay with him? How does that work? And we said, listen, there's no application. You can just ask. And so she asked us to come for a few days to her house. And that was great. We got to spend time with them. And the next morning that we arrived, we walked across the bridge and, and uh, had our stuff with us. The next morning we had devotions. We had family devotions and we just are going through the Bible slowly, you know, epistles. And, and we were at that point in the book of Revelation. And we got to the Laodicean church. That was the point that we, were, uh, got, we got in our Bible studies. So we open up and we begin to read about this church that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth because they're lukewarm, neither hot, neither cold. And he says, you know, you're all about wealth and you're saying, I don't need you, Jesus. And uh, they kick him out. And here he is at the door knocking, right, after being kicked out. Uh, here I am at the door knocking. And uh, he says, you are not all that, but you are wretched and you are poor and you're pitiful and you need me in your life. That's the, the sort of my summary of that passage. And so they're all about materialism and not, not about the Lord. So at the end, this Dutch lady says, hey, did you pick this passage because I was here? We said, no, it's just the next passage in our study. She said, this is who I am. She says, I don't pray. And everything revolves around this material wealth. And she left in tears from our Bible study because the Lord had spoken to her and went and spent some time with the Lord upstairs in her room. So the truth is what we speak in love. Well, we like to say we may be arrows going into dark places. We may be the tip of an arrow going into a dark place, but your prayers are so powerful, and God is the archer. They're like the bowstring. Your prayers are the bowstring. In fact, there's even a verse that says to stretch yourself in prayer. Beautiful verse. So if you, if you, uh, you know, people say, hey, how could I pray for you? We have a prayer card over there. And it's got all the kids. We've got nine kids. And uh, it's got all the kids on the prayer card. And if anyone asks, how can I pray for you? I said, listen, grab one of those cards and just pick one kid and pray for them. Because listen, they see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I want them to continue with the Lord. Uh, so pray for those kitty cats. And I didn't get a chance to announce this there, but there is, there is a raffle for this. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll do that in a second here. Uh, let me just pray for a group. And if you have questions, Larissa is going to come forward and answer them. And Lord, we thank you so much for this time together, my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them in their prayer life. It is the most powerful thing they have. Help them to guard their prayer life, to guard their praise life, to speak the truth in love wherever they go, Lord God. And we pray for the last reach people groups. Some of them are being persecuted by militant Islam uh, because uh, they're being used by those groups to scare missionaries and try to hinder us from going. But I pray for the 457, last of the last, the level zero groups, you know them by name, Lord, in the jungles of Brazil, in the reaches of Afghanistan, in the center of Africa, and, in else, and elsewhere, Lord. Would you please reach them with the gospel using us? Uh, would you raise up workers from anywhere you choose to go to those places, Lord God, to share the gospel with the last reached? And would you prepare hearts to go to them and prepare the hearts of these peoples to receive the gospel in Jesus' name we pray, amen.